Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. With me, as always, is my producer, Brian Ewing. Our guest today is Stephanie Lambert, Chief Compliance Officer with NetScout Systems, Inc. They are a leading provider of application and network performance management products. I know in recent months, we've seen the tech industry come under a lot of pressure, including antitrust fights in California and in Europe. The solar winds hacks got a lot of media attention. So we've asked Stephanie to come today and talk to us about the state of compliance in the tech industry and what's on the horizon. We're also joined by my partner and veteran cyber attorney, Ted Claypool. Uh, you may know Ted. He is a, uh, a widely published author, does a lot of blogs, and has been on this podcast before, for those of you uh, paying close attention. Ted, thanks for coming back. And Stephanie, we're really glad you could join us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. Some really interesting topics. So I hope we're, I'm sure we're going to have a great discussion. Thanks. Um, Stephanie, let me, before we dive into the topics, can you tell us a little bit about NetScout? I know they've been around for a while, and I know you're fairly new arriving there, coming from uh, first one source and then Staples. But tell us a little bit about, about NetScout and what they do in case we've got listeners that aren't, that aren't familiar with it. Sure. Uh, so NetScout is a public company. Uh, we have been in business for over three decades we're about a billion dollars in revenue, and we're located just outside of Boston. Uh, we run um, software that can provide visibility into network systems. We also have um, software that also manages and monitors attacks, such as denial of service attacks. So we're uh, in the cybersecurity space as well as uh, monitoring systems. So we are, we're very busy. Uh, obviously, this is a, a hot area, especially given uh, what's transpired this past year. Uh, I joined NetScout just at the start of the pandemic. So I've been there just about a year. Wow. Yeah. No, exciting time to be there, I imagine, with everything going on and all the increased focus where, you know, I mean, it was always mission critical. But now, obviously, that network security is, is top of mind for all sorts of companies and is really a lifeline as we try to live in this uh, what we call the everything from everywhere you know, world of digitization. So that is that is neat. Um, I thought we could talk a little bit about kind of technology regulation and cybersecurity. You know, there's been a lot going on, so it's tough for folks to keep up. And we have folks that uh, may not do this full time. They're general counsel with a lot of, of different roles. But we've got the new CCPA regulations, CPRA, uh, GDPR, data localization, just a whole alphabet soup of, of regulation. I'm interested, you know, as a compliance officer in the tech field, what are some of the things um, that you see coming this year? What, what's kind of on your radar and what should other people that, you know, may have compliance as part of a bigger role, what, what kind of things should you think they should be focusing on and thinking about? Sure. So, well, I think generally um, you mentioned some of the California, uh, recent California uh, legislation, and that's really representative, I think, of what compliance and businesses are dealing with not only in uh, data privacy, but in other areas. It's just a constant flurry of new regulations, many coming on the heels of the ones we've, we've just addressed, for instance. So, you know, privacy laws have come a long way and they're continuing to evolve. Uh, we still, though, have a patchwork of, of differing requirements. 
you know, when I first moved in house about 20 years ago, funny, I was charged with looking into these new privacy laws um, in the EU. And at the time, um, couldn't get anyone to pay attention to them. So now, <laughs> fast forward to today, uh, where, you know, privacy and cybersecurity are the top risks facing not only compliance officers, um, but according to a lot of um, surveys of corporate counsel, a really focus of executives and boards. It's at the top of the list. And these laws that cover the use of data primarily, you know, they're, they're serious. Uh, they can have serious consequences uh, in some cases if you run afoul of them. And they do require, when you're in-house, they do require collaboration for compliance. So it's not simply the compliance officer or the GC that needs to be thinking about it. I mean, this has to be a collaboration with marketing and privacy and certainly um, probably some other executives across the board. So with these laws, uh, like the CPREA, there needs to be governance on the use of consumer data specifically if you're in a business that deals with consumer data. Large organizations often have uh, multiple service providers, for example, and it can be difficult to get your arms around the data tracking or the data business, if you will. And ultimately, these laws are going to require us all to do that. And so companies of all sizes need to take a close look at where they may be storing consumer data and what are they doing with the data. Uh, so we need to ask ourselves, you know, are we selling it? Are we using it for advertising purposes? Um, you know, in some of these companies, if they haven't already, um, they need to be building potentially new infrastructure um, and making this a business requirement. You know, outside the U.S., uh, you mentioned uh, the GDPR, and we know um, Europe continues to evolve. We had the uh, so-called Schrems II decision last July that I've been focusing a lot of attention on. And if you, you know that that invalidated the EU-US privacy shield, which was one of the transfer mechanisms of data uh, between the EU and countries outside the EU. And so now countries need to rely on alternative transfer mechanisms. Um, the SCCs, which are the contractual mechanism for um, transferring data, they still remain valid, um, but we have to account for whether or not we've taken adequate protection, standards of protection in the third-party country. So that's where compliance professionals are spending some of their time right now, or they should be, looking at uh, supplementary measures that might need to be implemented. And so those are some of the details that are being explored and will continue to be explored as we um, go further into 2021. Um, I think that countries with data localization laws, I think you mentioned that, um, you know, that's really where uh, countries insist that the data must be stored on servers within the country. I think if you, you, you think that through and you think about what we know on the, about the internet and how it works, that these types of laws can really lead to impeded global growth. And so really, the internet doesn't have those type of geographic borders. Right. Uh, so it makes it a little challenging, but it's probably something that to, we should be looking at. And certainly NetScout is a global company. And so those companies like NetScout 
uh, need to be thinking about that, where they are and, and what those laws might mean should they be implemented or, or strengthened. Stephanie, I have a quick follow-up, if you don't mind, Mark, on that. The, um, Absolutely, Ted, go ahead. Thanks. There, there are um, some of the regulators in the EU that have said that the standard contract clauses should have been knocked out by TRIMS too, and they feel that they were, and they're pushing hard for data lo localization in Europe. Um, do you think that's going to happen? Do you think that now that administrations have changed and there's a little more globalized view to the current administration that we're likely to negotiate something? Um, which direction do you expect it to go? I would think that we would um, be likely to negotiate something. I think that this administration will be pretty savvy in this area. And I think recognizing that like I said, these geographies, uh, we, the internet doesn't have those types of borders and it's going to impact um, companies and the, you know, the growth and certainly the economy, which right now countries are all focused on, on growing. Uh, so I think that, um, you know, it's interesting. I hadn't heard that, but it's interesting that I knew the FCCs could be called into question. And I think that's what you know, most companies now are hanging their hat on that. Um, so that would be a, a blow, I think, to um, companies doing those cross-border uh, transfers of data. Yeah, I think that's I, I think that's true. I mean, what strikes me, we, we've been worried about data privacy, you know, for a while, at least the lawyers have. I know we put on webinars and everything else about uh, these for a long time. What, what I'm struck by are the, as a litigator in particular, are the number of lawsuits and the actual uh, significant dollar value settlements. I mean, just today I read an article about Walmart paying $10 million for violating the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act, health insurer paying $5 million uh, for disclosing personal information, including social security numbers of their folks. People are, real companies are paying tens, twenties, even hundreds of millions of dollars uh, for these breaches. And that that feels a little different. We've been telling companies, you know, you've got real exposure here, but suddenly we're seeing, you know, real dollars with it. And, and I'm interested in either of you, you know, whether that changes the perspective in some ways, you know, it's certainly gotten, I think, more companies' attention. Maybe it finally gives compliance people like you, Stephanie, a little more leverage to say, hey, this isn't optional. We really have to, we have to comply with these, with these laws. Uh, yes, I, I agree with you. And I think, as I mentioned, you know, 20 years ago, um, you couldn't get anyone here to pay attention to it. And I think it was maybe more of a cultural issue uh, where we had, you know, in Europe, they have a really a fundamental, they look at privacy as a fundamental right, uh, whereas in the U.S., uh, less so. But it, I think that we've had to, in order to um, have these cross-border and globalization efforts and globalization of the economy. Here in the U.S., we've had to address those data privacy concerns ourselves. And I think what you're seeing is, you know, initially perhaps a little bit of a shock uh, to uh, the United States and companies in the U.S., but a realization that this is the way of the future and that privacy is here to stay and regulators are now stepping up and they're seeing the kinds of things that Europe is putting into its, you know, the, uh, the hammer that they have with the GDPR. And I think they're realizing that there are ways to get companies to do 
what they need them to do. And that is, as you've seen, is to put some dollars behind it. And while as a compliance officer, you know, I got sort of a, a little the compliance piece, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. So I also, you know, always try to think behind of protecting the company at the end of the day, we have to um, comply with these regulations. And so anything that can help me convince folks uh, that this is the right thing to do uh, can be helpful. One of the interesting areas affected by this, Mark, is insurance. And, you know, we're seeing folks, companies that have, you know, 20, 30, 50 million dollars worth of insurance Mm -hmm. that when they have a breach, they're going to blow right through it. it's, it's interesting because a lot of people think they're well insured for this kind of thing with the numbers that we're seeing recently, um, especially in the, in the Illinois cases. Um, I know Facebook actually settled for something in the neighborhood of $26 million um, once they realized that they weren't going to be able to wiggle out on a standing uh, argument. But, you know, we're taking a look right now, you know, our lawyers at Wombleman Dickinson, we have 30 uh, privacy lawyers in the UK, and they actually work very closely with the ICO, which is their regulator, which is starting to uh, push out some pretty hefty fines itself. So um, already CNIL, the French regulator, has done so, and and we're seeing a lot of others. Um, and, and now... Europeans attacking American companies for this kind of thing is not new. And something like the top three antitrust amounts awarded in the last, well, awarded ever, have been awarded in the last 10 years against Google, Alphabet, <laughs> um, and, and others in, uh, in the U- U.S. tech space. And so I think that there's an argument that that's part of why the GDPR built in such uh, such a hammer, as Stephanie says, because they want to be able to try and make that effective against U.S. tech companies. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out and how many people think they're insured for this when they might not be. That is, thank you, Ted. That's a that's a key point. I think you brought up the antitrust cases, and that is something that I think is also fairly new, right? I mean, antitrust law has been around for a while, but, you know, I remember five years ago, people wondering, are we really going to have much antitrust enforcement? And then in the last six months, we've had, you know, a lawsuit against Google uh, for their Google ads. We had a lawsuit against Facebook, specifically targeting their acquisition of Instagram and WhatsApp. And I do, I, I wonder what you two think about not only those cases, but also is this going to have an impact on other folks in the tech industry as we kind of get this, what appears to be a somewhat bipartisan, you know, sense. I know the attorney general suit against Facebook, 46 states joined in. And so you've got Democratic AGs and Republican AGs. It's not a, you know, it's not a blue red issue. It looks like we're kind of building towards a consensus that maybe these companies are too big, too powerful, um, doing too much. And and I wonder if that's going to have ripples for companies, you know, that are much smaller, but are maybe in that similar space. Yeah, I think, um, you know, if you step back and you take a look at the types of antitrust allegations that have been leveled against these large tech companies, they revolve around 
their role as a gatekeeper, and the EU actually uses that term um, in light of the Amazon case, but the role as a gatekeeper to a certain marketplace and the collector and user of data on that marketplace. So their role as the gatekeeper provides them with this unique position to also um, be the sole party that has access to data about the whole marketplace. And then they use that data to benefit their own services potentially or allegedly over their competitors. Um, and some of these um, entities have been accused of using exclusionary agreements to grow their dominance. And so those are, are some of the accusations that have been leveled at them. Um, so I can give you an, an example that I'm uh, fairly familiar with, and that is um, the EU investigation of Amazon which focuses on its dual role as a marketplace and as a retailer. Uh, so whether access to uh, the marketplace data is anti-competitive. And it, the uh, EU is saying that Amazon may be using competitively sensitive information about marketplace sellers, their products, and even transactions on the marketplace. So then the question in the EU is whether or not their position is allowing them to uh, beat out the competition. And, and not surprisingly, these same concerns were raised by the FTC in 2019, although they didn't bring an action, their interest has been growing, I think. And I think what we'll see in the future is they'll, they'll be taking a closer look and potentially expanding into other areas. The EU has gone so far as proposing some new regulations and even classifying some of the online platforms as the gatekeeper. Uh, so I think what I would predict is that this will continue to get the attention of government regulators. I think here in the U.S., um, uh, the Biden administration um, is likely um, to continue and take up enforcement action in these areas. So it will be interesting to see uh, how that transpires in the coming year or two. Yeah, and I, I think we've turned a page in this country from a place of sort of Wild West expansionism um, that the big tech companies were kind of allowed to do anything they wanted in part because people didn't really understand what kind of market you are dealing with and how to define the market and how to split it up and how to make these arguments. Um, I think we've gotten to a point where those changes have been made, and I think the next 10 years are going to see this play out with regard to all the big tech companies. Um, the other piece of this in the U.S. that's interesting is the Epic cases versus Google and Apple, in which they have antitrust complaints of their own. They're not waiting for the government. And, right. and they interestingly divide down into a couple different markets. I mean, they're dealing specifically with the app markets on your phones and the way in both apple and google use app stores they make people use their app stores and they charge 30 percent off of vigorish off of everything every dollar that's spent goes to the app store and then they say that's not anti-competitive or uh, somehow squashing competition um interestingly uh epic is both attacking that concept of the app store. I mean, why couldn't you buy it from somebody else's app store? And they have a separate set of complaints about the payment process. You have to use Apple Pay 
in order to do this. I mean, of course, the reason that Apple has it set up that way is because if they if you don't use Apple Pay, then they can't account for all those dollars that come in. And so they make you use their payment program in order to uh, to do this. And so anyway, I mean, I think you're going to see essentially a, a less of a feeling of invulnerability amongst um, the major U.S. tech companies, the real giants, as they not only begin to get attacked by the government, they've been attacked by the Europeans for a long time on this kind of stuff. But as they begin to be uh, to get these cases from the U.S. government and like one that just came up, a second one against Google in the last couple months was only other U.S. states, no participation by the federal government. So you're going to see that, and then you're going to see them start to go at each other um, with these kind of arguments, too. So that, I mean, because some of what we're seeing come up in this is the fact that, as was reported in the last 48 hours, you know, Google and Facebook, Apple and Facebook, Google and Apple all have uh, seen that when when one was infringing on the other's alleged monopoly, um, they end up cutting a deal under the table that you stay out of this and we'll give you a cut of X. You know, that kind of thing was is pure Rockefeller antitrust. <laughs> uh, and and so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I, I love your reference, Ted, to the realization. I, I remember, and now it's a number of years ago, the notion was, how can consumers be harmed? These are free services, right? I mean, Google's free, Facebook's free. You know, well, just let them go. They they can't overcharge. They're not charging anything. And obviously, we've come a long way with with you know with data being the new oil, and that's what that's where the value is. And everything well, else. But me, it's taken me. our society and our legislature a while to get there and say, wait a minute, that the, the, these can be in a competitive and hurt consumers, even if there's not a actual you know traditional charge. It is not the oil barons you know, jacking up the, the oil price. It's a little more. Right, but early on, um, they, you know, people talked about this potential issue and because people would say, well, why would you put any money into Amazon? Because they're not making money. They have, they're not showing any profit um, or Facebook or whoever. And, but the concept was build the herd now, learn how to milk it later. <laughs> and and that's pretty much where we are. We've been for a few years in the heavily milking stage um, where consumers are getting some things for free, but are forced to pay for other things. And and then there's advertising and how that works into it. So, yes, they have built their herds and they are milking it now. And now people are starting to realize, oh, that's where the money comes from. Yes. And you, dear listener, are part of that herd. Yes. <laughs> We're all being milked every day. I, I know we talked about antitrust. Before we run out of time, I did want to talk a little more specifically about cyber. Again, I know some of the, the news is scary on that front. Each breach seems more destructive and worrisome. And, well, you know, no one seems free. It's, it's companies. It's the government. It's various agencies. I, I'm interested, again, in where that change may be headed and, you know, are we just going to keep seeing bigger and bigger breaches? Are we ever going to get to the point where kind of the the defense side has the upper hand and we really clamp down on it? What What does the future look there? Let, let's start with you, Stephanie, from your perspective as someone that's working in the inside trying to, to monitor that in a company in that space. 
any sense of where we're heading on the on the cybersecurity front? Uh, yes, so you're absolutely right. Um, you know, cyber, um, some areas remain the same and continue to be constant threats, but yet it also continues to evolve as attackers become more sophisticated or they get stymied by companies' efforts to stop them and they um, develop a more difficult um, detection uh, for those of us who are trying to detect them. So, you know, historically, you, we often saw these big hacks focused on retailers or consumer information and trying to get credit card data. And we know that those will still continue to happen. Uh, but we're seeing the more recent cyber attacks taking on uh, using more sophisticated tools and uh, bigger targets. And these, when we are dealing with these types of situations, we have to make sure that uh, we've got multiple layers of protection within the enterprise and detection. And all of that ought to be mapped out. So a compliance officer like myself would be working with, if it's IT or if it's this uh, security officer, whomever in the organization to ensure that uh, these things are being looked at um, and being looked at regularly. The types of attacks, so, you know, the phishing attacks that we've heard about, and that's P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G, right, are getting more sophisticated through the use of artificial intelligence. Um, you know, ransomware has been uh, for a long time, um, you know, the past year or so, at least uh, for me, a big area of concern. And that's where, you know, they install malware and it locks the business's network or encrypts their data. And this has become a higher risk for, for some time. So these hackers uh, are requiring a payment in exchange for the release of the data or the network. Um, you know, and the government this year has taken a look at this and said, um, you know, well, who are you paying? Like, it might get you your stuff back, but are you doing business with someone that the U.S. government, for instance, has said that you should not be doing business with them? Perhaps they are especially designated national and you ought not to be making those payments. And so, lo and behold, companies not only are facing a ransomware attack, but could they potentially be running afoul of some OFAC enforcement? And that's where you want your compliance officer um, having a seat at the table because IT professionals uh, may not be thinking that through. And then another area that my company uh, does focus on, and those are those denial of services attacks. And these are related to the cloud where they potentially overwhelm a victim's network so they cannot process traffic, legitimate traffic coming into um, the network. And this, as you can imagine, could be devastating to um, businesses' customers. Um, we saw probably, uh, about a month ago um, the SolarWinds hack. And this is an example of extremely powerful malware that infected software that was under assembly. And so that's a much more sophisticated type of attack because these um, bad actors are packaging malware inside of a trusted piece of software. So what happened was all of SolarWinds customers, when they received the updated software, were downloading this um, bad uh, malware. Um, the government was hacked um, and some sophisticated software companies. And we've learned that this is, at least the government has acknowledged potentially that this is the action of a foreign state actor. So we're talking about 
very sophisticated bad actors now. So this solar winds, as of late, is reshaping some of the um, new Congress's cybersecurity agenda. You'll see, I think, more requests for funding. I've read that they're potentially looking at new breach reporting rules or re revisiting them. And even some ransomware-related bills um, will likely be on the table. I understand that Congress is going to take up hearings on that SolarWinds attack. So we'll have to see um, what comes out of that. Um, so it's, it's definitely a, a space to be on top of as a compliance uh, officer. Um, and it affects uh, companies across the board. Well, and it'll be constant vigilance. Yes. I mean, there's Absolutely. just no... There, there's there's no rest on this. The bad guys aren't going to rest. And you need to be continuing to do what you do and you need to add more things. One of the pieces that I said to the compliance or the legal group that I talked to earlier today was that everybody has a queue and should have a queue in data security. In other words, there's no such thing as absolute security. You will never get there. So there are always ways you can improve. And so not only do you need to remain vigilant and stay on top of what you've got, but you always need to see how the technology is improving, um, what you can do to improve your, um, your, your defenses, and how you move into the future with that. Yeah, it's a scary time. And I do think it's certainly gotten you know, more and more attention as the breaches get more, uh, more and more significant. So... Um, good advice for folks out there trying to figure out what's what's coming down the pike. The last topic I wanted to hit on before we concluded is it involves self-regulation. I know, Stephanie, you talked about some things that are on Congress's radar. We've seen a lot of these privacy, data privacy acts and other things. Um, I'm also, you know, some observers have written that tech may start self-regulating much more rigorously than they have in an effort to try to avoid some of this. This could be, you know, either internal ethics and accountability or revamped privacy rules. Do you see that where you guys are coming from? And is that something if, you know, if I'm in a company, should I start looking at, you know, getting ahead of some of the, the, the regulatory change, whether it's whether it's Europe or California or or the new congressional rules, and are there things to be thinking about on the self-regulatory front? Sure. Yeah, it makes me think of something um, a very smart lawyer I know I used to work with used to say about uh, working uh, about government regulation that if you're not at the table, then you're on the table, right? You're you're <laughs> the meal if you're not uh, <laughs> thinking through these issues, and I think. Self-regulation uh, can be more efficient for businesses. You know, it, in theory, the idea is that you would then, uh, if you created your own efficiencies, it would help pass on savings to consumers, right? And you can think of what are examples of self-regulation? Well, industry standards, uh, best practices, you know, codes of conduct, you know, compliance officers love those. A lot of um, attention now on you know, corporate social responsibility, uh, ESG, uh, and then there's certainly a, a lot of industry organizations. So my, what I think is there should really be a balance of self-regulation and potentially state regulation. Because remember, the mere presence of rules does not necessarily mean all firms are engaging in good behavior. And self-regulation can be meaningful because there's usually 
better knowledge and expertise in the industry to come together and to create the set of rules as opposed to, you know, as I said, being on the, being on the menu and allowing um, government legislators to, to make those rules for you. Um, I think that the, the success of it really depends on the industry and, um, you know, our profession, uh, the legal profession is self-regulated and we wouldn't sit here to say it's perfect, but, you know, it's been able to function reasonably well through that mechanism around the world. So I think um, it behooves the tech industry to think through these types of things and what could they do working amongst themselves uh, to create uh, that type of self-regulation that you've, you've described. Because ultimately, if you don't, and as we've seen, as we just discussed with these big tech companies, if you don't, someone else will, and you won't have a seat at the table, and you'll have to live with whatever it is they come up with. Um, so I, I think um, it does make a lot of sense. Gotcha. Any, any final thoughts, Ted, on that or other topics? No, well, I think Stephanie said everything you need to say on on uh, self-regulation. I completely agree, but you know, otherwise, I would just say we're in a we're in a uh, a magical time for uh, for for <laughs> compliance officers. And I, I've been making comments to our practice group leader, who's not a privacy lawyer, but who is a trademark lawyer, that our practice privacy and data practice is moving more and more into being an administrative practice. It's going to look more like trademark law uh, five years from now um, than it does now. And it looks more like that now than it did five years ago. So I think as you see more and more uh, U.S. laws being passed, more and more areas where the government thinks there should be companies paying attention and abiding by standards and complying with good practices, I think you're just going to see more and more of, of uh, work for um, compliance professionals. So I send your children that. into it. <laughs> Job security, right, Stephanie? <laughs> and for all our listeners out there, too, in this area, I do think it's right. It does seem like it's it's more and more. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, Ted, where being a privacy lawyer or a data lawyer was an unusual Thing, right. I mean, we've been we've been at Womble long enough to know you were kind of that pioneer where it's like, what, what, you know, what is this area? And obviously uh, things have come a long way since then. So. I, I was just curious um, before we go for both Stephanie and Ted, uh, what is the one thing then based on, on all of the stuff that we've talked about? What is the one thing that you would recommend to your in-house colleagues to be doing immediately to, to prepare for? issues in general that are that'll be popping up this year and, and going forward? Uh, well, I've spoken on um, a number of panels. Uh, we uh, mentioning earlier uh, um, getting on the call with you know, uh, organizations like the Association of Corporate Counsel uh, and other industry groups. It can really help you if you are not already part of those groups, um, learning what the hot topics are, helping you to figure out what you ought to be spending your time on, um, I think that's one of the challenges, as we mentioned at the outset, that regulations are constantly changing, and particularly for a global company, it's very difficult to get your arms around, uh, and where should I spend my resources? And so if if someone is struggling with that, I think looking to these outside resources, 
talking to people, even um, outside council, like the folks here at Wombo, um, can really help you prioritize to make sure that you're not overlooking anything as things uh, evolve and change. And, and that's probably the, the constant is things are going to keep evolving and it's difficult to stay ahead of it. So the more uh, resources you can marshal to help you, the better off that you'll be. And I'd, I'd also add to that, keep the channels of communication open within the company as well. I mean, you need to be in touch with the data owners. I mean, whether it's the marketing people, salespeople, HR people, um, whoever's getting payments in, whoever owns that data, you need to be in touch with. And the data security folks, the privacy folks, and whoever else you have in your organization um, that is going to need to know this because this is an ongoing conversation. And as you learn these new things that Stephanie's discussing, you're going to have to pass them on and make sure that there's a receptive audience. So just make sure that you you keep that you keep those channels open. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks. That's going to bring us to the end of the show. Thank you so much, Stephanie and Ted, uh, for joining us. Um, Stephanie, I know you're active in the ACC, so perhaps we or our listeners can meet you at the next national uh, meeting once those go back to being uh, in person, hopefully in 2021. Um, I also want to remind our listeners that you can find previous episodes of the In-House Roundhouse and subscribe at our website, WombleBondDickinson.com, or iTunes, Google Play Store, uh, Spotify, or SoundCloud. If you have questions or comments, please share them with us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station.